All right, so we're opening up in our Bibles to Matthew 28 and verses 1 through 10. I'll read them to you this morning. So let's stand for the reading of the scripture. Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And so quick, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they shall see me. And so, Lord, we thank you for this amazing fact that you did not stay in the tomb, Lord, that you rose. And in doing so, you conquered death for us forever. And so, Lord, may that great truth that pertains to every one of us, may it resonate in our hearts today. May our minds be illuminated. Lord, may we be given fresh ears to hear and a heart to understand these things. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you can be seated. This morning, I'm going to use for our text verses three through five of 1 Peter chapter one. Our message titled this morning is A Living Hope. And so there in verses three through five, Peter is writing and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again or caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, And that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Peter, of course, was one who knew firsthand about the resurrection. He was one of those who was there on that day. He was one who went to the tomb and saw the empty tomb. And so many years later, he writes these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope. 
The greatest event in human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All human discovery and achievement, all scientific breakthrough and advance pale in comparison to this most glorious event, the event that essentially abolished death. That's what Jesus did when he rose from the dead. He, he abolished death. He overcame it. He destroyed death. Death is, of course, man's greatest foe. It's always been the case. All men in all places at all times have and do live in fear and dread of death. And of course, it's understandable. The current death rate is staggering. Three people die every second. 180 people die every minute. Nearly 11,000 people die an hour Today, 260,000 people will die, and 95 million people will die over the year. Death comes to young and old, rich and poor, good and bad, educated and ignorant, king and commoner. The dynamic young businessman, the glamorous actress, the great athlete, the brilliant scientist, the television personality, the powerful politician. None can resist the moment when death will lay its hand upon them and bring all their fame and achievements to nothing. Death is no respecter of time or place. It has neither season nor perish. It can strike at any moment of day or night on land, on the sea, or in the air. It comes to the hospital bed, the busy road, the comfortable armchair, the sports field, and the office. There is not a single spot on the face of the planet where it is not able to strike. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said, It is possible to provide security against all other ills, but as far as death is concerned, we men live in a city without walls. It's so true. It's so absolutely true. A look at the celebrity obituary from the last year reminds us of how true these words are. Listen to this list of people. We will be, many of us will be uh, familiar with many of the names here. Philip Seymour Hoffman died, age 46. Peaches Geldof died, age 25. Paul Walker, age 40. Corey Monteith, age 31. Lou Reed, 71. Ken Norton, 70. Tom Clancy, 66. Annette Funicello, 70. Jonathan Winters, 87. Nelson Mandela, 95. Gia Alleman, 29, Richie Haven, 72. Every one of us in this room knows some of these names on this list. And of course, this is just a reminder to us. And we have here in this list, we have uh, both young and old. And of course, in this list, we have uh, rich and famous people generally. But this is indeed the reality that we all live with. But the question is this, what is death and why is death? What is it? 
And why do people die? And of course, some would say, well, it's just part of the natural process. It's just what it is. It's part of nature. But you know, that explanation doesn't work because if it were just part of the natural process, we would have adjusted to it, but we still can't adjust to it. We can't accept it. We don't want to embrace it. And you know, the reason for that is because it really never was intended to happen. The Bible tells us that death is an intruder into God's good creation. The Bible tells us that death came as the consequence of sin. And so we read in the epistle to the Romans, chapter five, by one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin. But you see the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the Bible is really about God's great and glorious task of destroying death. That's what the scriptures are talking about as we go through them from beginning to end. And in many places, God made statements to that effect. Let me read two statements to you from the prophets. The Lord will destroy on this mountain, and the mountain referring is a reference here to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The Lord will destroy on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The veil, the covering that's upon everybody is death. God says that he is going to destroy. And then he said, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. So this has been God's intent from the very moment that death entered into his good creation. His intention has been to ultimately destroy death. That's been his task. And that task was accomplished by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as Peter tells us, now there is a living hope for those who trust in him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope. And there in those few verses that we read together, there are five things that are told to us about this hope. First of all, the source of the hope. Secondly, the nature of hope. Thirdly, the the object of hope, and then fourthly, the end of hope, and finally, the possessors of hope. And those are the things that I want to consider with you for just a moment. Number one, the source of hope. What is the source of this hope that we have? The source is none other than God himself. Blessed be, Peter says, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, otherwise known as the infinite, eternal, almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. We can have absolute confidence in this hope because God is the source of it. The God who is infinite, the God who is eternal, the God who has all power, the God who has something that no one else has. Well, of course, the things I just mentioned, no one else has. God is alone in infinite. God is alone eternal. God is alone all powerful. But God is also alone self-existent. 
You see, God has life in himself. Everything else is dependent on something else for its life. All of creation is dependent upon God. None of us have lives in ourselves, that life in ourselves. That's why our life expires and, and we can't do anything about it. As much as we would wish it wasn't going to be the case or as much as we would try our best to prevent that from happening, it, it can't be stopped. But yet you see, God has life in himself. And we're told in the scripture, Jesus said this, just as the father has life in himself, so he is given to the son that he also might have life in himself. And so this is the source of this hope. This is, my point is this, the hope is certain because God is the source of this hope. You can't go wrong trusting in God. He's the one who is the infinite, the eternal. He is the self-existent one. He's the one who said, I am who I am. Uh, when Moses asked, well, wh- who do I say sent me? He said, tell them I am who I am. And that was a statement that was declaring his self-existence. But then we see the nature of hope here. And it is, it is a living hope. You see, our hope today is in a living Savior. Our hope is in a living Savior. You know, there's no other religion in the world that has hope in a living Savior. And actually, every other religion's founder has either died or will die in the future. Only the followers of Jesus of Nazareth have a living hope. See, see, we're we're not resting our hope in a a good man who did some extraordinary things, but then died and, and, you know, faded off of the scene, but his his memory was kept alive by his zealous disciples. No, Uh, the New Testament tells us if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then we have no basis to believe in him whatsoever. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, nothing else he said or did matters because he said everything that he said or did uh, would be Uh, would be um, verified by this event, the event of the resurrection. So the nature of our hope is a living hope. We have a living Savior, the resurrected Christ. But some would say, well, you know, the resurrection, I mean, you know, isn't that just a myth? I mean, it, it, you know, th- those kinds of things don't happen. People don't rise from the dead. Uh, back in those days, people weren't scientific. They didn't understand the things that we know today. And, and this, this whole thing about a resurrection of Jesus from the dead, this is just a myth, they would say. Some say that today. And, and yet, you know, there's so many things that can easily refute that. But let me just give you a few. First of all, when you read the accounts themselves, they don't read like myths at all. They just read like straightforward facts. Either you believe them or you don't, but they're, they're laid out like straightforward facts. And some say, well, you know, the disciples got together and they came up with this idea to invent a resurrection. They, they just couldn't, they couldn't stand the thought that Jesus wasn't who they really hoped that he was. So they they invented this idea of a resurrection. But, you know, that's impossible. Even the text shows us that that wasn't possible because none of them thought there was going to be a resurrection. They couldn't have dreamed this up. They weren't expecting it themselves. 
And we know that for several reasons. Jesus, even though he told them on numerous occasions that the Son of Man was going to be betrayed and he was going to be beaten and mocked and scourged and spit upon and he was going to be crucified and die and rise again, every time Jesus said something like that, uh, the text tells us they all looked at one another and said, what in the world does he mean by rising from the dead? They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And we know they didn't get it at the very end because they went to the tomb and what were they going to do? They did not go to the tomb expecting to find the stone rolled away. If you read the, the accounts in all four gospels, the women that originally went to the tomb were perplexed as to how we're going to attend to the body of Jesus with that stone that's covering the tomb. What they went to do was to complete the embalming process that had begun uh, a few days earlier. They did not go with the expectation that there was a resurrection that was going to take place. Even when Peter and John, two of the closest followers of Jesus, even when they came to the tomb, they were perplexed. They were like, wait, what, what does this mean? And they, they, they saw the, the evidence. They saw the grave clothes and they were perplexed. John hints to us that he actually at that moment realized what was going on. But you see, this wasn't something that they planned. They had no expectation of a resurrection. And if they were trying to promote this idea in the society at the time as being a fact, the last thing they ever would have done is recorded in the text that women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And I'm not saying that tongue in cheek. The reality is in that culture, a woman's testimony meant absolutely nothing. So if you wanted to try to fool somebody, you would not include in your story that women were eyewitnesses to the resurrection because their testimony amounted to nothing. But yet when we read through the gospels, this is what we find. Women were the first ones to be at the tomb. They were the first ones to realize what had happened. They were the first ones to see Jesus and they were the first ones to begin to spread the gospel. Ladies, did you know that? That women were the first evangelist. That's what we read in the gospels. No doubt those claps were all from women. You see, the resurrection, as someone has said, is grounded in scripture, rooted in history, and confirmed in experience. The object of our hope is the resurrected Christ, grounded in scripture. The scriptures, you see, here's the amazing thing. The scriptures, and the reference to scripture here is the Old Testament scriptures, they prophesied, they predicted that these events were going to happen. And hundreds, and in some cases, thousands of years in advance, there was laid out the coming of the Redeemer into the world, where he would be born, the family that he would come from, the time in history that he would show up, the circumstances that would surround his life and his death, and the fact that he would rise again from the dead. And so Jesus, after he had been raised, as Luke tells us in the 24th chapter of his gospel, Jesus speaking to the disciples after his resurrection, he says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. 
And then he went on to say, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Notice, thus it is written, and thus it is necessary. Jesus was referring back to the scriptures. So the resurrection is grounded in scripture. This wasn't something that just appeared out of nowhere. This was something that was woven into the very fabric of the biblical record from the earliest days. So grounded in scripture, but secondly, it's rooted in history. It's rooted in history. You see, what we have in the New Testament, we have eyewitness historical testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These men saw Jesus. They they experienced him. We, we, uh, this morning at the, the sunrise service, we read the 24th chapter of Luke. And there we see that he appeared to these two men on the road to Emmaus. He later appeared to the 11 as they gathered in the upper room. He would later uh, appear to Thomas. He made a special appearance to Peter. Uh, he appeared to over 500 people at once, Paul tells us. And he appeared later on to Paul. And so these men they gave an eyewitness testimony. Now, again, skeptics say, well, you know, they fabricated it. They made the story up. They got together and they agreed, let's, let's make up this story that Jesus rose from the dead. But, you know, there was no advantage to doing that because all they got for their belief in Jesus was uh, kicked out of their communities. They lost their businesses. They lost their homes. Sometimes they lost their family. And in some cases, they lost their lives. So there was really no advantage to make up the story. People uh, project the current situation back into the first century, and they see you know churches that are um, very extravagant, and they know millions of dollars are involved in this and that. And, you know, sometimes they see preachers as, you know, people who are living uh, the high life and so forth. And they say, yeah, see, that, that's what they were doing back there. That's why, that's why they made up this story, so they could, they could live that kind of lifestyle. No, it didn't happen. None of that happened. There, there was nothing like that at the time. There was no advantage to making up the story if it wasn't true, because these guys... They didn't just tell the story. They sealed their testimony with their own blood. They sealed their testimony with their own blood. Now, who would make up a lie and then die for it? You see, if this was a lie, they knew it. And yet they died for it. But that that doesn't make any sense. People wouldn't make up a lie and die for it. Now, people die for lies, but they think they're true. But these guys would have known that this wasn't true. And so it doesn't make any sense to, to say that, well, they, they made it up. Uh, no, they didn't make it up. They were eyewitnesses to these things. They experienced Christ. And their experiences, again, testified to everything that happened. They were, they were cowardly at the death of Jesus. They, when he was arrested, everyone fled. When he was crucified, they went and hid themselves Uh, they were afraid themselves of the authorities. But then suddenly they appeared on the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming this message which landed them in prison and got them beaten. But they were unfazed by any of that. What explains the transformation? It was their encounter with Christ. Professor Ed Sanders of Duke University, not a Christian, 
actually a man who would consider himself an agnostic, but a, a, a professor of history and specializing in uh, the time period of the New Testament. He said, there are no substantial doubts about the general course of the life of Jesus. About the year 30, he went to Jerusalem for Passover. He was arrested and interrogated by Jewish authorities, specifically the high priest. He was executed on the orders of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. His disciples fled. They saw him after his death. As a consequence, they believed he would return to found a kingdom. They formed a community to await his return and sought to win others to faith in him as God's Messiah. So what is he saying? He's saying, you know, there's, there's no doubt regarding the historicity of these things. They are historical facts. Another professor, um, Christopher Tuckett from Oxford, he says, he said that these things here surrounding the, the death and the resurrection of Christ, he said they are the bedrock of historical tradition. So you see, the resurrection is rooted in history. And then thirdly, it is confirmed by experience. It is confirmed by experience, beginning, like I said, with the experience of the original disciples. The only way to explain what happened to them afterward is they must have met the risen Christ. They were completely transformed. They were different people. They went from uh, being cowardly to being as bold as you could possibly imagine. They went from being fearful to being absolutely fearless in the face of death. And they all went to their graves confessing Jesus is Lord, refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. But all the way down through history to this day, we could point to the millions upon millions of transformed lives through encounters with Jesus. The story, if, if you were to write the stories of the lives that have been transformed through an encounter with Jesus, I think, you know, you, you wouldn't have an, enough um, books to contain all of the stories in the hundreds of millions, the lives that have been changed. And over and over again, we've seen things like this, the hateful becoming loving, the violent becoming peaceful, the abusive becoming gentle and kind, the vile becoming pure, the proud becoming meek, the wicked becoming holy, the self-righteous become humble, the selfish become selfless, the greedy become generous, and on and on and on and on it goes. And of course, many of you in this room, you've got your own story. You know, you're not the person you used to be. And the only explanation for that is that you met the living Savior. And you see, we talk about being, uh, you know, the resurrection is grounded in scripture. It's rooted in history, but there's the experiential element. We have this experience that we all know. You know, at the end of the day, when somebody says, well, how do you know this is true? I say, well, you know, I met this Jesus. I met him and he took my life and he, he changed it. He transformed it. He set me on a completely different course. He took me from being that selfish, self-centered person. He took me from being that, that wicked person and he's working that holiness in my life. And, and you know, many of you have the same story. And there's too many stories to, you know, deny. 
It, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, there's no scientific proof for this. Now, how do you get scientific proof for anything? Well, you do experiments, you do testing, right? Well, I, you know, I think that this is pretty scientific, actually. You can find millions of people throughout history who all have the same story. I was a sinner, I was selfish, I was wicked, I was evil, I was vile, I was violent, I was this, I was that. And obviously you look at him and it's like, wow, you're none of those things today. What happened? I met Jesus Christ. And the same story over and over again. I think that's a pretty good uh, bit of scientific, a, pr a pretty good bit of empirical evidence for the reality of the biblical claim that Christ rose from the dead. And so we have the object of our hope, the resurrected Christ. And then fourthly, the end of our hope. Where is all of this taking us? Well, Peter tells us, we've been begotten again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away and that is reserved in heaven for you. When he says incorruptible, he's contrasting the new body that we will receive through faith in Christ with the present body that we have now that is corruptible or another way to uh, translate that word is decaying. We're going to receive... Uh, we're in line to receive an inheritance that will never decay. You see, what God has in store for us is a new life, a new body that will never be sick, that will never be tired, that will never suffer, that will never die. It's a body like the body of Jesus. He rose from the dead. He didn't rise as a spirit. As a matter of fact, when they thought he might be a spirit because they were stunned that he could be alive, he said... He said, look, touch me, handle me, see that I am not a spirit, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he said, do you have anything to eat? Spirits don't eat. Jesus said that just for the very purpose of proving to them he was not a spirit. And you see, this is what God has in store for us. The end of our hope is an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and it, it never fades away. It's reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God. Now, for some people, they're like, well, you know, that's pie in the sky. I, what, you know, I don't really care about that. No, you might not care about it right this moment, but when you get a diagnosis that says you've got six months to live, you might be a little more interested in this inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled. And believe me, there will come a day when something like that will happen. But even more seriously, it might happen suddenly without that kind of notice, and there's no time to prepare. So now is the time to prepare. You see, we can't hold off because as we read, death can strike at any moment and any time. There's no place on the face of the earth where anybody's safe. We never know. But for those who have put their trust in this Jesus that we're talking about. This one that God sent into the world, the one that he promised from the very beginning of time, and the one that he spoke about in the long history revealed to us in the pages of what we call the Old Testament. And he came just as God said he would, just at the time that he said he would come. And he did exactly what the scriptures said he would do. 
And so the promises that we will have this inheritance incorruptible and undefiled after uh, the, the service, the sunrise service this morning, we came back and we were here uh, enjoying breakfast. And I met a couple, I, I saw them and they looked a little bit um, lost. So I just began to chat with them. And I, I noticed immediately their um, accent was a South African accent. So I, I, we started talking a little bit about South Africa and um, the woman, as she was talking to me, I noticed she was just getting a little bit choked up. And then she just blurted out and said that they had lost their 27 year old son recently. He had died in an accident. And, you know, as we sat there and we talked for a few minutes and we just were able to talk about today, we were able to talk about the hope of Easter, the resurrection. And, you know, in the end, I just sort of, you know, gave her an embrace and just said, you know, the great news is that there's a reunion coming. There's a reunion coming because Jesus said this, he said, because I live, you shall live also. And what he did is he conquered death. And everyone who puts their faith and trust in him, they conquer death. And we will all one day congregate together with the Lord and be with him forever in his kingdom. And so there's that living hope. How hopeless would it be to just, you know, well, you know, to say something like, well, we lost our son and uh, we, that's just the end of it. We don't know. But thank God he hasn't left us hopeless. He's given us a living hope. But the final question is this. Who are those who possess this hope? And we are told here it is those who have been begotten again. Begotten again, or another way to say it is born again. Jesus is the one who coined this phrase, born again, by the way, if you didn't know that. Jesus used this very terminology speaking to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a teacher of Israel. He came to Jesus because he knew that Jesus was extraordinary. He was unique. He comes to him, he says, uh, we know that you've come from God for no one could do the things you're doing unless God is with him. Nicodemus is is asking in a roundabout way. He's asking the question, uh, how do I get right with God? Or how do do I get, uh, you know, this eternal life or whatever um, the terminology was that he used? And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? And then he said these words. He said to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, born again? How can I be born again? I'm an old man. I can't go back into my mother's womb. Jesus wasn't speaking about a physical rebirth. He was talking about a spiritual birth. How can I be born again? Jesus said, you can't even understand the kingdom of God, let alone enter it unless you are born again. Nicodemus, how can I be born again? Jesus said this, the famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Peter is writing here to those that have been born again to a living hope. So the possessors of this hope are those who have been born again. How are you born again? By believing in Christ. And believing is not just intellectually uh, acknowledging his existence, but it goes beyond that. It means to receive him into your life. As many as received him, he gives the power to become the children of God. And you see on this day that we gather to remember the greatest event in history when Christ conquered death, could there be a better day 
than today for you to experience this new birth, this, this life, to have a, a personal encounter with this resurrected Christ and to receive as a result of that this living hope. No, today's the day for that. And I would just encourage you, I know many of you, if not most of you have done that, but I know as well that there are some that have yet to do it. And maybe there's been, you know, those thoughts in your mind about, well, I don't know if this is really true and that sounds a bit mythological and miracles don't really happen. You know, put all of that aside and ask Jesus if he's real. Ask him to come and meet you. He is real. He is alive. And he will meet you today. He is the living Savior. There is a living Savior. He's in the world today, one of the old hymns says. And then when it asked the question, um, they asked me how I know he lives. Well, he lives within my heart. I, I know. Thank God we have the objective um, testimony of Scripture, those prophecies and promises. Thank God we have a faith that's rooted in history. It's historically verifiable, but, you know, it's more than that. It's personal. You can know this Christ today, this risen Christ. And so Peter says, blessed be the God and Father. God has done all of this, and that's what Easter is about. It's about the culmination of God's plan to conquer death, which he did through his son, and that victory he intends to pass on. He desires to pass it on to all of his creatures, to each and every one of us. And that's passed on to us by being born again through faith, through personally trusting in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray today and we thank you that we are here today because you live. And Lord, if you had not risen from that grave, we would not be here. None of us would be here. Lord, if you hadn't risen from that grave, there would be no reason to be here. But Lord, you did rise. And we have met you. And you have changed the lives of many here. And Lord, for those of us that have met you, for those of us whose lives have been transformed, Lord, may we never lose the marvel of it all. May we never lose the sweetness of it, the preciousness of it, the, um, Lord, just the, the, the wonder. May we never lose the wonder of it all. When we think about you conquering death, when we think about you being laid in the tomb, but yet bursting forth on that first day of the week, Lord, may we never lose that wonder. And Lord, for those today that might have joined us, they came with a friend or a family member, or they just came because today's Easter. Lord, may they today have an encounter with you, the living Christ, the risen Savior. May their hearts be drawn to you. May every obstacle be removed. And Lord, may they become born again through receiving you. And while we're praying today, and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're focusing our attention on these things. If you're with us today and you've never met this living Christ, but you want to meet him, you want to have the assurance that this isn't the end when you die. You want to have the assurance 
that you will be with the Lord, that you will live on with him, that you will meet again your friends and loved ones in that heavenly kingdom. You want to have your sins forgiven. You want to have your life changed. You're tired of the life you're living. It's killing you. It's wearing you out. You're ready to trade it in. You want a new life. That's all the reasons why Jesus came and died and rose again. If that's you today, I want to give you the opportunity to be born again, to receive this living Christ. And so if that's you, I want you just to slip your hand up and I want to pray for you. Anyone at all, just slip your hand up. God bless you. Anyone else all around the room, God bless each and every one of you that are raising your hand. God bless. That is great. Anyone else, just slip your hand up. Father, thank you so much for these that are indicating. Lord, you see them. You see their hand raised. You see their heart, you know, right where they're at, what they need. And Lord, I just pray now that you would meet them and cause them to be born again, to have that living hope. For those of you that raised your hand, I want to just ask you to pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive my sins and to come into my life. I believe that you died for me and I believe that you rose from the dead and I receive you now. And Lord, I pray that you would just meet them right where they're at today and that you would do an amazing work of revealing yourself to them. And you know, just as we're finishing up in prayer here, still praying, you know, if you are here and maybe at one time in your life, you walked with the Lord. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home or maybe you somehow, you know, had a relationship, but it's been a long time and you've wandered away and yet you find yourself here today. It's time for you to come back and receive a fresh touch from Christ. So if that's you today, anybody at all that wants to make a recommitment of your life to Christ, you've been out in the world, you've been living according to the flesh and it's killing you and you're killing everybody around you and it's getting old and you're ready for a change. If that's you, you want to come back, then you just slip up your hand. I want to pray with you as well. God bless you. Anyone else? Lord, thank you again for these. Draw them to yourself, Lord. Today, may they meet you in a fresh and in an awesome and a powerful way. And Lord, may there be no turning back, but may they from this day forward, go forward into this new life that will go on forever and ever because you live we will live also. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.